Japan's reaction to the pandemic or management of the pandemic, and that's Naito also, so hasn't had much, didn't get much credit in, in say, in Western media, like that Japan was one of the first countries to come up with the idea that um, the virus is aerosol driven. So, um, and uh, I, I think, because Japan is just regarded as something like, oh, well, a weird country. It's a weird country anyway, right? Um, I think um, Japan, by wearing, by, um, you know, looking at um, keeping air clean, air filtration and wearing masks, Japan has done a lot, has done actually a good job, in my view, in the pandemic without lockdowns. And it's quite amazing that it gets so little attention. And this is what Naito also said, I think, um, because Japan doesn't do a lot of reporting in English so people can pick it up. So so I'm, I'd, I'd like to, you know, do a little bit more on this one just to, because um, I think Sweden has got a lot of attention because they did things differently. So how much, I don't know, lots and lots has been written about such a small country that can't be really compared to other countries because it's just a couple of million people. So yeah, I'm, I'm quite frustrated that Japan never really gets a lot of attention. Welcome back. You're listening to The Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Here at Japan Forward, we bring to our audience issues that are of real importance in and about Japan from the perspective and context of people inside of Japan as expressed or captured by them who truly understand the nuances of culture, issues, and current events. In today's session, we catch up with Agnes Tandler, who is a seasoned foreign correspondent who covered key conflict stories in the Middle East and several parts of Asia before she arrived in Japan. Currently residing in the northern part of Japan, in Sapporo, in today's session, Agnes shares with us her experience living through the historic snowfall in Sapporo this winter, the city's famous soup curry, and world sporting events that faced climate challenges. Thanks for joining us for our weekly Twitter Spaces. This is our second one. It's so so exciting, so fun. Slowly, <laughs> slowly ramping up. Um, and this week we have Agnes joining us to, to speak about um, just a couple of things. But before that, we want to give a quick introduction of what um, Japan Forward is about and who we are. So Naito-san, would you be able to um, share who we are? In what we do. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, well, uh, my name is Yasuo Naito. I'm editor-in-chief of Japan Forward. Uh, for anybody unfamiliar with us, we started Japan Forward in 2017 with the goal to reach global audience, sharing stories and opinions and editorial contents from Japan. Well, we noticed that uh, much of the coverage about Japan, uh, published by English-language media, lack perspectives and sentiments from people inside Japan. So in many cases, uh, it was biased and culturally nuanced to create a negative perception of Japan and Japanese. We offer provide a balance. Our mission, shared by supporters and followers, is to raise awareness of Japanese spirit, culture, and tradition. Okay, shall we start, uh, Agnes? So yeah. can you introduce uh, yourself? 
please. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought that was your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be me, but uh, it's better that. Uh, okay, I can do this also. Yeah. I mean, please. <laughs> yeah, my name is Agnes Tandler. I have been a journalist for a couple of decades. I'm now. I've been uh, covering Asia for a long, long time as a foreign correspondent, mainly for German media. I came to Japan and uh, in 2020 and got stuck here during the pandemic. And um, yeah, that, that was a good thing. And since then, I've been working for Japan Forward as well, which is a great pleasure. Yeah, that's all. And I'm based in Sapporo. Yeah, that is probably quite unusual. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, okay. that's why I had a chance to write about our big snowstorm on uh, on Sunday. <laughs> well, can you talk about uh, your story uh, to share with our listeners? The snow. On Sunday, well, uh, Hokkaido is no strangers to snow, obviously. We have an annual snow festival. Sapporo hosted the Winter Olympics in 1972. There's plenty of snow here, and uh, but on Sunday it was there was like more than sixty centimeters of snow fell within uh, twenty four hours, and it it's apparently broke all records. And on Monday and Tuesday, like buses, trains, flights, everything had to be cancelled. Mm-hmm. So that that was our big snow crisis. <laughs> Although, although it was more like a man-made crisis because it had been snowing quite a lot for the whole in in the whole of January already, and when I came back from Tokyo maybe a month ago, um, I I, uh, I took a taxi from the the train station, and the the taxi driver was quite happy when he understood where my street is because apparently taxi companies had already told some drivers that they can't enter certain streets because yeah no it it has snowed a lot the snow hadn't been properly removed like in other years mm-hmm. and there, there are manholes inside the street and because there's warm water under it 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 created huge craters so mm-hmm. cars got stuck in there and people were really angry but nothing happened the city kind of uh, always said like yeah you know so many people in home office there's not so much traffic so there is a, this year is not going to be so much snow so we're not going to remove the snow as we did so there has been <laughs> there has been this crisis going on for a while but when it really really snowed so hard on on sunday kind of everything broke down <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when it first started snowing did you feel like this is going to be a lot of snow or like is this, well, is this I'm normal a, for Sapporo? What, what were you thinking when it was happening? I was. I'm a, it's my fourth consecutive winter in Sapporo, <laughs> and uh, and I'm a late riser. So when I got up, I, I, I was supposed. I wanted to go skiing. I could barely walk to the the uh, the subway station, and then the, because the, the snow was so deep already, <laughs> and then yeah, well, for skiing it was a lot of fun, obviously. <laughs> I've never, I've never seen such a thing that like I um I'm doing a bit of a like um, how do you call this backcountry? It's not really backcountry. So I'm walking up on skins, mm-hmm. and in a, in some parts I just it was more like taking a snow bath. I just completely with my ski I just sank in onto to my hip, and I had problems to get back out. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
So, yeah. so it was really like, yeah, it was quite. And um, and Sapporo has a good system normally to deal with snow. So they they are out when it snows. They are out every night clearing the snow. They have like air hammers where they just kind of drill off the ice from the road. So it's actually in normal years. It's it's actually pretty 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 easy to walk around here. But this year, this big snowfall combined with the reluctance of the city to remove snow <laughs> created like a really particular atmosphere here. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, uh, you see, uh, I'd like to, uh, you know, uh, I hope, you know, the snow, uh, we can send all those snows to Beijing where they're, they're, they're lacking the snow and uh, they create the artificial ones. So. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Why, why do you think that, oh, sorry. sorry. No, I was, I was quite, gonna say, why do you think there was quite a reluctance to to sort of deal with the snow? Do you think they were just I don't know, too busy with COVID or something? Or I think it's a bit like, you know, Hokkaido is a highly that's my theory, you know. <laughs> Hokkaido and Sapporo, they are highly dependent on, on tourism. They haven't had tourists for two years now. Mm-hmm. The the annual snow festival when it was last held, there was they are like more than three million. They are three million visitors. Mm-hmm. It's huge. So mm-hmm. and now nobody's nobody's showing up anymore. So they haven't. They haven't. They don't have. They don't make enough money, like in tax or like in. Mm-hmm. And then when they were and, and removing snow is is quite costly because it's all manual work. They are sending like trucks and uh, excavators and all mm-hmm. the snow needs to be removed and then the trucks bring it outside the city and dump it somewhere in some forests. So that's mm-hmm. quite costly. So I think they were just hoping, first of all, they were hoping for climate change, not understanding that climate change isn't that there's less snow, but maybe there's <laughs> lots of snow one day. And then like now, the next day is spring. All the pictures that you posted of literally walls of snow and the people walking next to it. Yeah. It was really hard to even pass people on this. They weren't on sidewalks anymore. So it was just going up small hills and going back down. Sapporo also has a, a lot of buildings have like a heating system. So so then you, and some, some buildings most don't have a heating system. So where there is a heating system, there's no snow. So you're coming from a hilly, from a hill back down. <laughs> Until no snow, and then you just go back up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'd like to like nice on segue to the Beijing Olympics. We really, <laughs> no, I think they'd be very grateful. Wouldn't they? They'd be grateful for some snow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's also funny that the first thing you did after you woke up was think about going skiing, <laughs> enjoying the snow itself. Yeah. I'm very jealous. Maybe it's a it's a sign that you've gotten used to living in Sapporo over the last couple of winters. Yeah. Is it your fourth year, fifth year. It's my yeah, it's my fourth year. Wow. But I've never seen so much snow. It's just really, it was just really amazing. Mm. <laughs> I lived in Sapporo about oh thirteen years ago. Fourteen. Oh wow. Years ago. Oh wow. I did my homestay there when I first visited Japan for the first time. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It was during around this time as well. Is um the Yuki Matsuri? It was like the first week, yeah, and second week of February, and yeah, same. I was like, I've never seen so much snow. I've never like had to shovel like early in the morning just to make sure my door doesn't get locked out. Yeah, I mean, my, like my, 
my, my friends who, who have a, who own a house, they have to get up every morning and shovel. And they, they, they take hours. They took hours to clean the snow. There was no place to put the snow anymore. <laughs> yeah. and it's it's and it's the second I think it's the second consecutive year that the snow festival has been cancelled mm. and the last time it was held there wasn't enough snow they had to carry the snow in by trucks into the city to make these uh, snow sculptures they're like the, I don't know if I've seen it they are huge like 20 meters and they're like maybe 10 meters high it's just it's an amazing work they are they are just working on those sculptures for, for a month some yeah, of the so, pictures you sent showed that they were actually working on the sculptures uh, recently as well. Yeah, they did, and then they destroyed everything because oh, how um, tragic. They, <laughs> exactly, and now it's the yeah we want to hold it online in some uh, undisclosed um, location so that nobody can ever see them, and we're going to stream it online. Mm. <laughs> no, <laughs> I am also not so sure if that's a good idea. <laughs> Has yeah, have you actually seen the snow festival since you've moved to Sapporo? Nice, yeah. That's good. That's good. Hopefully things will turn differently for next year and mm. people can go and see yeah. it again. Oh, well, hopefully. <laughs> you've also covered the um, the coronavirus situation there. How is it now with all the snow? Uh, well, in, in Sapporo, if I knew, I mean, people have been sick um, some shops have been closed. I can't really say how bad the situation is com compared to Tokyo. I don't know. Uh, but definitely, it's a lot more people sick than uh, there used to be. But it seems to be a lot milder because I think a lot of people are vaccinated. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think numbers seem to be quite low compared to Tokyo, but obviously I'm in Tokyo the city, so it doesn't really compare. But uh, yeah, I think they registered a new peak yesterday in uh, Sapporo, didn't they? I think of mm. daily. Was I think it was? I believe. So, I'm also assuming it's quite low um, because of the the big um, foreign travelers, mm -hmm. and the people moving into moving in and around Hokkaido for the snow mm -hmm. season. Mm -hmm. um, so that was part of the reason why I was in Hokkaido like years years ago was that some friends were doing their working holiday um, to do to work at the snowfields in in and around Sapporo. So I'm assuming that although people are not there this year because of of the the virus. Mm. Um, okay. Did we have any other questions regarding the Sapporo historic <laughs> snowfall or any other comments? Um, I thought it was interesting that at the end of your article, you suggested that maybe Sapporo has the Winter Olympics in its future because it's had so much snow um, in uh, in the you know this year. Um, okay. I, was, I was wondering if you could expand on that. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, Sapporo has been trying for a while to get the, the Winter Olympics, but unfortunately, I'd say it just doesn't have enough money to uh, to win anything. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure people, you know. Hokkaido doesn't really have an economy. It's, it's It depends on tourism, and now mm -hmm. there's no tourism. And I think a lot of, although there are still a lot of venues from the, you know, from the uh, Winter Olympics, if they were to host a new Winter Olympics, they would have that would mean massive investment, and it's mm -hmm. 
um, although they have a lot of snow and they wouldn't really need artificial snow, <laughs> they still would spend a lot of money upgrading all the facilities. And, you know, there are so many new um, disciplines, even in, in the Winter Olympics, they'll have to, whatever they have to construct, there's a lot of things. Um, it's, it's, it's quite unfortunate this year, I was thinking, and I'd like to know your view. We have going on is the Dubai Expo World Expo, exhibition we have the beijing winter games and we have coming up you know the world cups the soccer world cup in doha so we have three big events mm -hmm. all hosted in countries that are well call it a police state call it uh, uh, call it a dictatorship call it as you like but it looks like uh, more and more the olympics are becoming so expensive that only authoritarian regimes who want to green wash, white wash, or whatever wash, mm -hmm. uh, are willing to host these things. And I think that's, if we are making fun of the Beijing Olympics, it's also, and saying, yeah, where there's no snow. Yeah, I think they only had one content, there were only two candidates. And mm -hmm. and, and uh, I was thinking, yeah, in my article, I also posted a link to a study saying that by the mm -hmm. end of this century, the only of the existing um, Olympic hosts for winter games, the only city left with decent snow conditions or weather conditions in general, it would be Sapporo. Uh, so for hosting an Olympics, you can't host an Olympics like in, probably there's some snow in the mountains, but if there's no city that will, is willing to spend money to construct mm -hmm. all these things, there won't be a winter Olympics. So I don't know, I'd like to know your views on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a kind of good point, I think, uh, Agnes. Yeah, well, because of the those uh, totalitarian states, only the totalitarian states can uh, hold the Olympics. That's a kind of bad news. Uh, well, today I read the Sankey reporters, you know, um, coverage about the even the foreign reporters in Beijing, uh, you know, becoming hesitant to criticize the uh, the the Beijing's way because you know it, it's. Uh, it's not good uh, criticizing and uh, they're covering the, the, the sports event. So uh, he's writing that even the U.S. reporters inside of the bubble who are sitting mm. in, in mm. the compounds are not criticizing or uh, mm. even, you know, try to not make a kind of issues uh, just to mm. concentrate on the, the coverage of the sports. Mm. And in that way, you see... Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, under the COVID situations, more investment will be needed, more kind of, uh, uh, well, safety. I mean, the, the security issues are in agenda. So, um, yeah, it's going to be tough. I think that the Sapporo is maybe willing to have the uh, the, the Winter Olympics, but uh, huge investment. No, and that investment would have to come from Tokyo. That can't come from... <laughs> Sapporo alone can't find that money. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it would have to come from the central government. And I don't really think the central government is willing, would be willing to do so, given the uh, the amount of money they've already spent on the COVID crisis. Mm. <laughs> which, which leaves a question about, you know, who can hold Olympics in the future? Will the Olympics actually be able to continue as they have in the past as a celebration of sports? Well, we have enough authoritarian regimes. They can, they can hold that in turn. 
Now, but the winter sports, the authoritarian regimes can only do it if they use man-made snow, apparently. So, mm -hmm. still, isn't there still Russia? <laughs> well, Russia wasn't in the study. And what did you think about that? I think because they aren't they out officially for the they, second they're banned? Yeah, they they're are banned. banned from doping. They're banned right now because they, they are banned from doping. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they even if you think about this, the ice skater. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. who's just uh, won gold mm -hmm. and probably won't get it because she's like mm -hmm. she's been tested positive. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> also a figure that I found out today was that even the Sochi Olympics, um, that I mean technically right in Russia, but um, they had eighty percent of artificial snow. Mm, yeah. It's happening in a relatively cold place, but still, you know, even if you are in a in the right location, you might not have snow because that's the way it works, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's erratic. And so uh, there's been reliance on artificial snow, even in competitions or, you know, ski locations for ages. Mm -hmm. Organizing an Olympic Games is obviously a different matter. So, mm. Yeah, obviously the Olympics have just gotten too expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was thinking, what I liked about the Tokyo Olympics was I thought the Paralympics were actually pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's a way the Olympics could go back in, you know, to something that's more, that's less commercial. <laughs> well, it, it's a faint hope. <laughs> But then it could be hosted in other cities as well if that wasn't such a massive investment. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I remember when the Tokyo 2020 games were um, being set up and even in year 2020, a lot of major Japanese companies who were sponsors were starting to pull out or mm. change their um, allocation. Um, but I think, yeah, Olympics and these types of events give those types of companies an opportunity to get maybe to advertise or to promote um, their involvement in these said events. Um, but I, I guess I haven't followed the situation with, with, with Beijing in China's Winter Games. Um, I know there's also like a, he a lot of heavy bidding for the, the FIFA World Cup um, mm -hmm. event at the end of the year with a lot of um, global companies trying to be, um, yeah, roll out their, their sponsorships mm -hmm. and their, their ads and stuff like that. If we think about the FIFA World Cup, I mean, Doha is also... A Pretty is the same as Beijing because it's going to be extremely hot. Even they have, uh, and the, the the soccer is is held in November or December, and even then it's going to be way too hot because it's in the middle of a desert. So it's a, it's a bit this it's it's similar to Beijing with no snow. Is now a, a soccer World Cup coming up, which will be like massively warm. Mm -hmm. In Qatar, right? Yeah. In Qatar. I'm just looking at Google Maps right now to see how close it is. To, oh, okay. It's, it's similar, similar line. And uh, traditionally, the Soccer World Cup used to be in summer, but now they have shifted into winter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they, because in summer, it's 50 degrees. No, well, in winter, it's only maybe 40 35. Are you talking about centigrade? That is unbelievable. Yeah, well, and they said that the Tokyo Olympics were hot. <laughs> it's a desert. It's a de it's in the middle of a desert. What mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, these big sporting events are really culturally important in a lot of countries. 
But I, I do think that there's a question about practically how you can scale them back to a level where they can be safely held given things like the pandemic and the uh, cost of making snow and the impact of uh, using mm-hmm. the the water uh, from the environment, uh, yeah. that's the water is taken away from other uses, including municipal mm-hmm. uses and house yeah. you know household fresh water, uh, and it, you know it's a really I think a complicated environmental impact, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's meant to be a celebration of sports that mm-hmm. maybe we would like to get back to. <laughs> Don't you have a sports reporter in our team? Yes, <laughs> we're, we're trying. We're trying to get him to join. We're having oh, a no, no, as, as as just listening in today. So okay. maybe if he feels oh. like it, he might write something. But okay, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, specifically on the water uh, issue, I was researching this earlier today, and uh, I mean, it said like it need. They estimated that it needs two million cubic meters of water for these Olympics, which if you convert it, it's about 800 Olympic pools worth of water. But they say that this estimate might be actually, you know, less than what they need. Um, and yeah, they are, they say, the organizers of the Olympics have said that, that they're taking the water from reservoirs, so it's all rain water, and that they will recycle it. Um, but uh, there are issues with uh, so when you spray some of this artificial snow, apparently a lot of it gets lost in evaporation. Mm-hmm. So they cannot recycle as much as they think that they can. Um, and uh, so there, there's so many issues. So actually, there has been a report that estimated that every meter cube of snow actually requires three dollars in cost if you consider taking the water and um, you know making sure that it's cold enough that it becomes snow and then the the area itself around Beijing is really dry and arid so they need to apparently create an extra layer of ice so that the snow will actually stick so it just seems like it's you know it becomes a question of okay we can do this but should we do it <laughs> it's the same for qatar and the uh, the football world cup they are going to probably artificially cool the open air stadiums <laughs> so that, that people feel more comfortable so it's just like, it's just cool, cooling down the desert they're going to cool open air stadiums yeah yeah of course they, they, they are doing these things they're doing these things already cooling down certain places because it's so hot so they by like by using water mm. I mean, to some extent they did that in the tokyo olympics as well right they had like yep. vapor sprays and that sort of thing <laughs> okay maybe we can <laughs> skip to another topic um <laughs> How about Agnes? It's already like the middle of February. Um, 2022 is flying by really quickly. Have you got any things planned in the next couple of months, weeks? Something that you're working on or something that maybe one of your hobbies or interests that you're pursuing? Oh, I wasn't prepared for such a question. Well, with the pandemic, I'm just taking it, I mean, week by week. I hope to come to for the cherry blossoms in Tokyo, because living in Sapporo means I can have cherry blossoms in, in Tokyo in early April, and then in early May, I can have cherry blossoms here. You'll definitely have to let us know if you're in Tokyo, so we can mm. we, we plan something. We enjoyed your cherry blossoms in Hokkaido last year, too. Yeah. Thank you for, for the stories on that. Yeah. Um, and you've also been recovering the, uh, the the COVID-19 situation for us in Japan and comparing to other parts of the world. Yeah, um, I mean, is there any news on that? Anything going on beyond the, the stories filing for us on uh, Late Late? Um, 
Well, definitely. I think um, Japan's um, Japan's reaction to the pandemic or management of the pandemic, and that's right. Also, so hasn't had much, didn't get much credit in in say in Western media, like that Japan was one of the first countries to uh, come up with the idea that um, the virus is aerosol driven. So. Uh, and uh, I, I think because Japan is just regarded as something like, oh, well, a weird country. It's a weird country anyway, right? Um, I think um, Japan, by wearing, by, um, you know, looking at um, keeping air clean, air filtration and wearing masks, Japan has done a lot, has done actually a good job in my view in the pandemic without lockdowns. And it's quite amazing that it gets so little attention. And this is what Naito also said, I think, um, because Japan doesn't do a lot of reporting in English so people can pick it up. So so I'm, I'd, I'd like to, you know, do a little bit more on this one just to, because um, I think Sweden has got a lot of attention because they did things differently. So how much, I don't know, lots and lots has been written about such a small country that can't be really compared to other countries because it's just a couple of million people. So yeah, so I'm, I'm quite frustrated that Japan never really gets a lot of attention. Mm. The, well, the, Fugaku computer, the Fugaku computer that um, analyzed uh, a lot of the, uh, the aerosol uh, spread of the coronavirus uh, got some prizes as well oh, internationally. I know, I've and been yet, writing, uh, this is what I want to write about next time when I'm writing mm -hmm. about masks, because uh, it has won a lot of prizes just by uh, simulating um, the way the virus spreads in uh, indoor settings when people are wearing masks, when they don't wear masks, when they are eating, when they're drinking, when they're talking. So that's quite amazing research done. Yeah, so write about it because uh, despite the fact that it's gotten all these great prizes internationally and some of the scientific community sees that, uh, the normal Western press doesn't seem Absolutely. to care. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but I also think that's a bit of uh, Japan's problem because they always look inward. They don't want to look outward. There isn't much in English. Um, if you look at the, the, you know, the sides of the health ministry, when I normally go and check how other countries are doing, there is something in English. There isn't really much to see. There aren't, like, I think the experts like Otani or like, they don't give interviews in English. So things are just not picked up or maybe our foreign correspondents in Tokyo are lazy. I don't know. What do you think? I think probably a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the limited amount of information in English is certainly frustrating. Mm -hmm. uh, the government websites are incomprehensible. Uh, they're even incomprehensible in all languages, I heard. Think of that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think uh, there could be a lot of, of uh, effort on the official side as well as on the side of people like us to bring more attention to what Japan has done and what has worked. And um, right now there's the Omicron uh, explosion of cases. But on the other hand, uh, Japan has done you know really pretty well uh, without having to tell people, you know, getting into a mask uh, war uh, publicly mm. with the people who do and don't want to wear them and whether or not it... Exactly. Yeah. And so, there's the lockdown too, which is, a, which is a big, big difference to many Western countries. Yeah. Um, it's a very, it's a voluntarily, like, you know, act this way for like the benefit of like the nation. I also wanted to quickly add that 
<laughs> my baby's crying. I'll just come. I'll come back in a second. <laughs> so it's it's one of the things is that uh, Japanese seem to be more concerned about impacting their neighbor if they don't take care about how they behave. That if they behave in a way that puts people at risk, and uh, that seems to be the opposite concern in some of the West. Uh, so absolutely agree. I'm absolutely I, yeah. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, maybe, you know, the lack of communication to the outside might be changing slightly. I mean, I'm sure that you saw, Agnes, uh, at the end of January that the New York Times published an opinion piece by Professor uh, Hiroshi Oshitani, who is yeah, one of the key. I know, the key I've seen that, yeah, yeah. But that is a, that, that's more like an outlier. That was the first time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I thought I was surprised that there was such a column, mm. um, mm. which, I mean, it has the very clear title, what but write about COVID-19 um, and, you know, exactly what you were pointing out. So maybe there are communication strategy, but obviously it's already two years in the pandemic. But that, but that came most likely, that was most likely the initiative of the New York Times and their science writer who had been covering Japan in 2020 already and uh, the aerosol theory. And I think she asked Otani to to come on with it wasn't him i would think it was more like the new york times asking him and and a personal connection between you know a, a reporter and uh, otani interesting yep yeah you're probably right <laughs> so it'd yep. be interesting to have the background to that mm. so maybe you can include a push uh, about how uh, all of us in japan should be uh, spreading the word a bit more uh, doing our thing to explain better what Japan is doing and mm. and why and the analysis behind it that it's you know not just some quirky cultural thing mm. that Japanese like masks but mm. uh, that you know that there's actually um, facts and reasons and and uh, research behind it. Mm. So go for it. This kind of this this kind of racist connotation, I think. Um, like ah, it's a weird Asian. These are these weird Asian things, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, Japan just doesn't get credit for the fact that there's a lot of science, there is science behind it, because that seems to be something that only other people are doing. Well, so, yeah. yeah, touched on that, you said um, there's some exceptionalism with how Japan is p- performing compared to other countries. I know on Twitter, especially Japan expat Twitter, <laughs> a lot of comments are about Japan not testing enough and, and things like that. But that narrative is old and people still ignore the fact that a lot of people in Japan have already received their second um, vaccination and are already on their third. The death rate quite um, low. Substantially lower than a lot of um, big countries who even had who, who had um, lockdowns sure. and things of that nature. Um, sure, but again, sure. everyone just says Japan's so lucky and everything like that. Um, but I, like Japan was unlucky. We were we were gifted the the coronavirus from that from that ship. I don't remember the ship's name. Oh, no, even before that ship, even before the uh, the Diamond Princess uh, yeah. was moored in, in on the on the port in Yokohama, we had. I mean, in, in Sapporo held this snow festival, and I think we had a million Chinese visitors, and yeah. there's no. I mean, yeah, and obviously, I think uh, Hokkaido, we were the first to have the, the first corona wave started here. Right. So things like that, too, that um, and they always, you always see on expat Twitter. Yeah, expat Twitter is the worst, isn't it? Yeah. 
I've never seen such a. I have never seen such a weird Twitter of people. Like um, I wrote about, like I wrote about uh, quarantine, and I think Ariel also wrote about quarantine. And so many people are complaining about Japanese quarantine. They don't really know what it means to be in quarantine in other countries when you have to pay like. $3,000, $4,000 for the pleasure of being in a really bad hotel with bad food. Yeah. And it's like this was like, yeah, I can't eat this. I can't eat that. So no, I don't want to stay in the small room. It's horrible. It's like, yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, expert expert Twitter is weird. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Agnes, go go. Yeah, it's like they are super complainers. Yeah. Uh, so. The loudest voices on Twitter, and they all like heard and you know retweet like each other and just suffer together, which is, which is funny behavior. I think out of this call, there's Ariel and Susan who have both quarantined recently when they yeah. went to Japan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I agree with Agnes. It's it's funny because you're thinking, of course, nobody likes to be confined to a to a room for however many days, be it three, six, or ten days. But this is a stay which is happening for free. You're being fed food, which is on the whole, like pretty decent food. I mean, you know, tennis superstar Djokovic had to stay in a hotel where they allegedly fed like food that had maggots in them, you know. So like in comparison, like this is pretty decent food. And uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, everything works like clockwork. You get tested like however many times you need. That's also for free, by the way. (laughs) You know, you need to pay and then you will get, you know, shepherded to whatever you need to be. And then... uh, you know it, it, that's that i mean if anything it's kind of like how much can they sustain a system that works so well but can only work for so many people because if you try to it up, it's impossible to maintain um so yeah i don't understand either i was like okay as far as i'm concerned this is imposed rest for a couple of days and you know just start a new hobby watch a couple of series it'll be fine <laughs> well i just got off quarantine um and uh i have to say that i've done quarantine now three times uh coming back wow. uh, from overseas and uh, this one was only for seven days uh, three of which were in a hotel. Uh, the hotel had a terrific view of the Tokyo skyline. I, I don't live in a place with that kind of great view of the uh, Sumo Basho uh, tournament location and the skyline beyond, uh, beautiful sunsets and sunrises. And yeah, the room was really tiny, but they fed me three times a day. I didn't cook. I didn't have to worry about how to get food because I couldn't go shopping. Uh, and uh, when I got out, I only had four days left. Uh, that's vastly different from the two weeks. The two weeks was really difficult because you're having to figure out how to get groceries and call on friends and neighbors to, you know, do favors for you and things like that. Uh, uh, You know, this this was really, uh, in a sense, it was sort of like having a a resort holiday. Uh, As you come back, you don't have to go home and clean the house and you don't have to deal with the (laughs) lack of shopping. Uh, and, and And the government paid for all of it. My food was pretty good. I mean, there was some really decent uh, grilled fish dishes in in there and uh, lots of choices on each plate. You couldn't pot by. I suppose some people could finish it all, Uh, but uh, there there was a lot of food. (laughs) Uh, It's difficult to really complain about it, but I would worry about whether or not Japan is, you know, wisely spending its money on people like me uh, for that. But uh, that said, uh, yeah, Yeah. that, that said, it's not that hardship for me. And it's certainly not like this poor um, young eights in, in Beijing that have gone on social media to say that you know, first they tested positive and then they were put in uh, some sort of a, a 
facility like a hospital or clinic or something. And then they, when they tested negative, they thought they were going back to their group. And then they were, they bypassed that and ended up in a place they had no idea where they were. Uh, and, you know, they can't talk to people. And it, it's a really, you know, totally grim situation. They don't know, you know, what's happening or where they're going to be next or how long they're cut off from their countrymen. Um, and in a, in a, in a country like China, which is uh, quite authoritarian, uh, I would say that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. So, plus the food, I have plus seen, I have seen this of the food, and <laughs> it just, just, it just adds to the misery. Let's say, let's yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. Just a quick note to our listeners that Agnes published a story with us about three weeks ago um, in late January. Welcome to quarantine country. Strict safety measures are unique to Japan. And there's a comparison to some neighboring Asian countries like India, Taiwan, the Philippines, and also Australia and New Zealand. Um, and yeah, Thailand, Singapore. So have a read. Um, and maybe UK. Get a good pers- yeah, the UK, um, in, in Europe. Well, technically not part of Europe, but have a read and see um, the differences there. I think there's a lot of things that you can gain insights on, on how Japan is handling um, the quarantine situation. And we've we've got two testimonies just now from Ariel and Susan. I think those are quite quite good, strong cases that um, Japan's doing okay, and it's not doing as bad as most Western media portrays it to be. Um, we're coming up to almost to an hour, so maybe we can slowly wrap up. Um, how how should we do this? Agnes, do you have any announcements on your side? <laughs> listeners to know. Yeah. Are you watching the Olympics? Just before we, I don't. I don't have a TV. But yesterday I went to the onsen and they like the outside onsen. Normally, you know, I'm going. To, obviously, I'm in the women's section, so there's no news but cooking shows. But I mean, they had the Olympics on, so I watched the uh, the giant slalom, and it was great. Sitting in 42 degree water, watching those <laughs> crazy skiers racing downhill. So I'm watching a little bit, yes, when I get a, a chance. One of the other stories you did, just to change the subject a bit, was about the uh, curry rice in Hokkaido. No, it's not curry rice, it's soup curry. Soup curry, sorry, sorry. Tell us about that. What can I say? It sounds awful, doesn't it? If you if you talk about soup curry, people will just imagine <laughs> a, a curry in a soup. But like soup curry is something that I've only seen in Hokkaido. The idea is that you have a you know, kind of a special soup where they are, you put a lot of vegetables and uh, chicken and, and stuff. And it's actually, and you have rice on the side. So it's quite, quite delicious. You know, lots of, it's a good food choice. And it's really good after skiing, after being out in the cold. So it's, um, it's one of my favorite dishes here in, in Hokkaido. Another reason to visit. One one of the things that um, that I suspect is that it's also not very expensive. And while many uh, Western media complain about the cost of Japan, um, I think the food in this country that ordinary people go out and eat uh, is both delicious and extremely uh, absolutely cheap. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 
I love soup curry, by the way, too. So, really? That's yeah, a yeah, maybe that's the fun. Soup curry in Sapporo, in Hokkaido, is like you need to get it every time you're there, or you can find somewhere in Tokyo that has this, has it, but it's not the same. It's not the same in Tokyo. That's true. But what's your favorite? What are you? What were your favorite places? I think they are all. They still exist. Uh, no, they weren't changed. That's the, that's the thing. I I was um, my host sister was yeah. very very into like gourmet. Mm -hmm. She took me to some nice like some nice place near near Sapporo Station. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a chain, but it was. It had all the things I wanted to eat, like broccoli, <laughs> fried chicken, and all like the, the the delicious root vegetables you can get in Sapporo. Mm. They had a lot of vegetables in it, which I really like. I often eat the vegetarian version of it, and the, the soup is really different from shop to shop. So it's yeah. always I always feel even if I eat this three times a week, it's it's always a it's it's, it's always a different dish wherever I go. I think also the, another reason why I haven't had it so much in Tokyo was that a lot of soup curry places, there's always a lineup and you have to either go early before mm. the, the doors open or mm. a very good place at all compared to the But there's one place in Ebisu um, near the station, which is quite good. Maybe I can add information. I can't think of it right now, but it's, <laughs> I need to go and just check it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, any other you can questions? go next time you're in Tokyo. I guess. <laughs> Let's go for some curry when I'm here. Yeah, I already promised we would go, so now we have to go. <laughs> I, I just want to add something that we have a listener um, with us who's also another contributor, Dr. Uh, Monica Chansoria. Yeah. Uh, and she was based in Sapporo in 2012. Oh, wow. so yes, so she's also very much enjoying listening to this. Um, and uh, I don't know how to bring her in so she can comment, but I just wanted to add that note. I, let me send an invitation to you. If she responds, it'd be great to have a curry conversation. <laughs> we should have a curry culture session, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, I think maybe Dr. Chansor is on desktop, and desktop doesn't allow. Oh, I see. You have to use your phone. Um, when I first came to Hokkaido, I heard about soup curry, and I completely, and it was such an off-turning, uh, it was such an off-turning thing. Like, wow, I was thinking about a, a curry that is really in a watery kind of soup, and I was like, no way. But, um, well, they should maybe rename it. Yeah, I had the same thing. I, I totally dismissed it. I, I didn't understand what was so good about soup curry. Mm. But kind of like peer pressure, also just not peer, I wouldn't say peer pressure, but just having an open mind in, um, from my host sister. It's like you should try it. And a lot of people like our age, I was still like in my early twenties. She said they, they people love it. So I tried it, and I was like, I should have, yeah, I should have before saying something. <laughs> I love soup curry. Yeah. <laughs> so sounds to me like uh, you know have you ever heard that or you know uh, the, yes. miso soup uh, together with the rice become a you know nekomama it's a the cat food we call it but if uh, you know miso soup turns to curry I mean soup curry then it's more like uh, well uh, the fashionable or the, the for the young people's dish maybe <laughs> well I, I I should try that too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Any last right. comments on from your side, Agnes, or anyone about curry or anything before we go? Uh, okay. 
So yes. see, see you next time you come to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay, we have beer blossoms and soup curry to do. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order, no. <laughs> do you think, we have a, do you think we, there will, will be a hanami season this time? Uh, there hasn't been any major announcements, but like where I live in, in I don't live in Tokyo, I live in Kanagawa. In, yeah. um, there are parks and it, there's like um, guidance on how to enjoy hanami. Mm. Restricted sizes. So no, what, what, enjoy, enjoy hanami, don't drink. Something, <laughs> stuff like that. It just depends on the park. But the one that's quite popular is like, you can you should only spend like a limited time in this park with this number of people. Mm, okay. Be conscious about how loud you speak and stuff like that. So, so you're asking whether the blue sheets are going to be down and away. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, the office parties. Probably exactly. not. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. But like little private parties. Yeah. And, and walk through the blossoms. Uh, walk, don't stop. Yeah. I think that's probably. <laughs> walk, don't stop. Yeah. Okay. So we'll hopefully right. see you in a couple of a couple of weeks, months. Yeah. It was and great fun. Thank you, Galileo, yeah. for setting this all up. No, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's nice to speak with you again. And like, thankfully, you've survived this, the photo, this, the photo snowfall. <laughs> and thank you always for contributing and writing for us. We we love the insight and the perspective that you share. And you're a very good advocate, um, a wonderful advocate for things that are in Japan and things that are in Japanese, from um yeah from your perspective and experience. And we look forward to a lot of um, what you have for us this year. No oh, thank you so much. That's so kind. All right. So to just to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel, and our spaces will be distributed on Spotify and Apple Music. Make sure you subscribe to that as well. We'll do this um, again next week, so keep an eye out on Twitter for the announcement. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, everyone, for joining and speaking in the call. Thank you for listening to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Visit our website for more information regarding our podcasts and other news on Japan. Catch you next time.